This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In this episode, we hear how a United Nations radio station helped to build peace in Sierra Leone's brutal civil war. The radio was for the people. We were speaking their languages, bringing their stories out, including the rebels. That's the voice of Sheila Katzman, a multi-talented broadcast and theatre professional. In 1999, she was recruited by the United Nations to help develop a radio station for the peacekeeping mission in Sierra Leone. Towards the end of a decade-long war between government and rebel factions, Sheila set up Radio Yenamsil, as it was called, with a special focus on community engagement, listener participation and on bringing key players from the fighting factions together for peace talks. Sheila worked behind the scenes and as a presenter and played a key role in shaping the focus of Radio Yenamsil. And in this interview, she shares with us all sorts of stories from her life and work. She tells us how, from a young age, she discovered that media and storytelling could transform people. She tells us what it was like to first arrive in Sierra Leone and the challenges of learning on the job. And then she tells us how the radio station ultimately became a model for future UN peacekeeping missions. And along the way, she makes a powerful case for strengthening ties between media and community. But when I spoke with Sheila, I began right at the beginning and I asked her where she is from and what makes that place special to her. I am originally from Jamaica. I don't know why we have to say originally. I'm Jamaican. (laughs) (laughs) I I was born there. I grew up and lived uh, around the world. The UK is one of those places. And um, Jamaica is special to me because I don't think there is any place in the world like Jamaica. (laughs) No matter what's going on there. It's such a welcoming place, but I also haven't been to any place around the world where I wouldn't live. Everywhere is just so unique. And um, I am a people person. I love people. I am totally fascinated with cultures and foods and national costumes and, um, and histories of cultures and peoples and civilization around the world. And your career reflects that, I guess. You've, you're very well-traveled and you've got all this experience in theater and radio and in community empowerment and women's rights and things like this. I, I wonder, how did you first become uh, interested in, in theater? Oh, that's a long story. Um, I, which I'll make short, of course. <laughs> Let me go back to maybe when I was about maybe seven or so. I played in a school drama, Little Red Riding Hood. And I remember that I was petrified by the guy who played the wolf. Literally scary. And uh, I just developed this 
whole thing about performance later on in life, because I'm going to say later on in life, in my teen years, because I was a teen mother, I was ostracized by my family, my mother's family, because I was a rude child kind of a thing, they say, which I wasn't. I was really raped when you think of it. Now that you know, we, we all know what rape is. I was actually raped. I was young. Mm. And then I was very sad most of my life when I went back to my mom. She didn't understand who I was and why I was perhaps angry, perhaps missing my parents' love. My parents were divorced and that was the crux of the matter. We didn't even know they were getting divorced. We were sent off to live with different family members. That's the drama in itself for me, who never really got over it at that time. And so I found that I I did go back to school and I went to teacher's college and um, dropped out of that in Jamaica, joined the police force, got kicked out of that. And then I did for things computer and information science. I became an accountant. <laughs> I was just moving from one thing to the other because I was very unhappy, I think. Now I now I know that I was unhappy. Now I know that I was also depressed because I used to cry a lot, but on Sundays only. My family is a very kind of was very conservative in not what conservative means in the United States, mind you but conservative in the sense of how you behave, how you carry yourself, that sort of thing. And um, I think I was rebelling on the inside. And then I got introduced. I actually was in England when I got introduced to, um, to a theater company and played Mary, Queen of Scots. And I'm like, oh, this this theater thing is something else, you know? And I realized that acting is just about acting, me playing you and you playing me. And if I can play you convincingly enough, well, that's it. And um, in Jamaica, at the National School of Drama, which is now the Edna Manley School for the Performing Arts, I went to the drama school and found this was home for me. And I remembered the first story I told. This was like a storytelling class. And the story that came to mind was about my personal life, which I never told anybody about, not even my mother, of an aunt that I lived with who really brutalized me, really treated me horribly. And um, I, um, I think if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have had a child when I had a child. And uh, but I'm happy that that also happened because that makes me into the woman I am today. I told a story and then I never saw the the other drama students in the room when I told the story. Everybody was there, but I didn't see anybody because I was transformed. I was taken back into a particular time in my childhood when I was beaten for something that I didn't do. And I remembered when the drama teacher, she came and she said, okay, ball if you want to ball. Scream if you want to scream. I I was in tears. And that day, 
that particular day, that particular evening, I was transformed. I was relieved. A burden came off my chest, my body, my everything. I felt beautiful. I... Um, and I'm I'm kind of looking back at that time right now, and it's kind of emotional for me. But mm. that's the beginning of my theater career. So, I mean, did did you have a sense that uh, so so theater had this transformative sort of impact on you? Did you have a sense that well, if it can do that to me, then it can do that for for other people and for communities? Oh, oh yes. Um, mm. At first. I wasn't, at first it was about me. It was all about me because I needed work, but I didn't know I need work. And I didn't know that, that it's the, it's the process that was doing it for me until later on. Um, I'm now I'm a psychodramatist and a social, social dramatist. And, uh, well, I'm an applied theater practitioner and, kind of a blending that also with radio and something I developed called socio radio. But yes, it's transformative. And and I've never said it before. And I'm saying it now. For me personally, theater was transformative. I never ever thank you for talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was my pleasure. So, so tell me, tell me where you went from there. How did how did it become how did it become a, a living? When I came to the United States, I was at the United Nations, and I was really hungry for theater. And I had met a couple of people along the way who told me to call them up when I get to the United States, if I ever get to the United States. And so I did, and I got introduced. Julie Bavasso, rest her soul, she co-starred in Bandit Priest, and she had a Shakespeare company here in the, in New York. Then I got introduced to the Black Theatre Alliance and the New Heritage Theatre and uh, the Frank Silveras Writers Workshop in Harlem. So I did all the, the, the rounds of workshops and training from HB Studio to... Um, Steinberg and and these sort of things and and then learned a lot, got off Broadway gigs and um, and and then start producing too, and then when I left UNDP, I went to work for CBS Cable. Well, I don't want to say how how I got there. So that, that was that's the TV channel, is it? That's the TV. CBS was the first to bring cable to the United States. Mm. And this was working, not a full-time job, but working part-time. You get time to go audition and all those sorts of things. And then I went to CBS Television Network, work across audience services, work for 60 Minutes, etc. Um, so you see what's framing me now to get me into journalism in a sense. And, and and really liked it, liked what I was doing, that I went to Warner Brothers and I became a, a, what is known as a project officer. I was moving from place to place, meeting all the stars, um, and then went to DC Comics. And the woman who was my supervisor at DC Comics was Lillian Lassison. And she decided that she would leave 
the show to go to law school. And she did media law. Now, she encouraged me to go to law school when I was working for her. And these are not permanent jobs, they're just jobs, you know. She encouraged me to go to law school. And I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And I did those classes for about two semesters and didn't understand why I had to do criminal law if I want to do media law, right? Why, why am I going to do criminal law? You know, guy jumped through window, broke his leg, breaking into somebody's house, and then sued the owner of the house. And that was a case, right? And so I left and I went and did broadcast journalism. And uh, that was for me really where I found interest in storytelling and in digging up stories, which we do as a applied theater practitioners in digging up stories and the stories are real, went to hard copy television again. And that was really good investigative journalism, if not the best. And, and so I did that. And then I went back to the UN. I went back and I joined UN radio. And then the opportunity came for me to go to the field in peacekeeping. And I did. Was this to Sierra Leone then during the Civil War? Uh, Sierra Leone was my first peacekeeping mission. So tell us, tell us about what happened there. So I went to Sierra Leone in 1999 and we were supposed to have peace because the Lome Peace Accord was enacted. So we should probably give people a bit of background, should we? Was, was, it, was it 91 or 92 that the, the Civil War started? Yes, since 1992. And one mm. of the problems was that the people in Freetown felt that the war was a country and it wasn't their problem. Okay. And that, and that was the first problem with this situation. And so the rebels had descended upon Freetown, uh, known as the West Side Boys, notorious West Side Boys. And so you have factions upon factions that were built there. But the Revolutionary United Front, the AFRC, and the Camajors, Camajors were the government forces. And it's also tribal because the government militia are from the Mende groupings of people. So the peace of the, in January 6, 1999, the rebels had descended upon Freetown and kind of overrun the West African armed forces comprising of all of the West African countries through contributing to, mm. to the forces. And at that time, people will know the horrible things that happened, the horrors of cutting babies out of pregnant mothers and, and wagering the sex of the child before they do that wow. and then cutting pregnant women you know bellies opened i like to talk about mm -hmm. anyway and the, these were some of the horrible things there was the situation of the machete there was the situation of pita pata and pita pata was the kids who were kidnapped and transcripted by the armed forces when they came to Freetown, the 
word was pitter-patter. And when they hear that pitter-patter, they would just fall on the city like rain, just like raindrops. So it, and, it, that, that phrase would mean just child soldiers? Yes. Mm. And I don't like to use that term because we had changed it because no children are not soldiers. Mm. Right. Child combatants, we call them. Okay. Okay. So when we went there, for me, you could smell the air. And I've been to West Africa before, never been to Sierra Leone, but arriving in Sierra Leone, you could smell something. And, I, and I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure what it was. Even the waters look um, sleepy, murky, whatever it is. Flying over from Conakry, Guinea to Freetown, and you look at the water, you're just praying to God that you, your helicopter don't fall into that. Wow. It just was eerie. It was live horrors or horror movie being played out and, and you are a part of it now. So all that happens and, and then we had the Lome Peace Accord. And the Lome Peace Accord means that people agree and they're going to give up their weapons and they, all these things are going to take place. And, and that really wasn't happening I mean, there were times when we were, our headquarters was right next to the prison, just a narrow wall that uh, separates us. And I remember once we were, we were locked into the compound in our containers because it's, you know, our offices were containers and, uh, and we couldn't get out because there was stuff happening on the road. Right. And at mm. that time we were just transitioning from a, an observer mission to a peacekeeping mission. And, at, and they had only 7,000 troops. And I was the first and only female professional staff of the United Nations there at that time in PI, in public information. Mm. And then you realize that peace don't really mean peace on piece of paper. But what it means is that you have to realize that when uh, representatives of factions and government go to another country to sign some deal, that there were people in the different parties to the conflict who don't agree at all with the deal that's going to be signed. So now they come back with um, this peace agreement and on, on all sides, there is, yo, you shouldn't sign this or something like that. Things like that, I think, you know, is the norm of such a situation. And I remembered one day my flatmate and myself was, we're on our way to work. And she was driving. And I heard when she said, uh-oh, and we had to reverse because the boys were out and they were doing whatever it is that they could. I don't remember how many died on the road that day. And this is, this is peace, right? We're mm. there to maintain the peace. That was the gist of it. I spent six and a half years in Sierra Leone. I mean, you know, there was a point when we, we were doing the first elections and somebody phoned in and said, Madam Sheila, you should run for president of the country. Right, that was a good, I mean, seriously. Because there were things that I could do that people couldn't do. And I was there to do radio and... Um, and developing radio, and oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? So it means that you have to go down to the people and you have to speak to them, you see. You, you have to speak to people at all walks of 
from all walks of life, at all levels of society, right? And that includes government, the common man who is fighting for his life. And then, you know, I was the person who brought members of the RUF with the AFRC and the government of Sierra Leone to the table with our deputy force commander at the time and brought them together on UN radio in a hotel room. We didn't have a station built or anything, just to talk, just to talk. And we weren't sure it was going to happen. And the people thought I was crazy, but that's what I did. And it happened. And, and when it comes to radio, everybody trusts radio, including the rebels. Right? When Rambo from the West Side Boys came out of the Okra Hills and was interviewed by the BBC Focus in Africa, he said, I came out because of that radio station, they have a free town called Radio Yonamsil. So the, the radio was key to bringing everybody together, including UN agencies on the ground. So that's the gist of where we are in coming up in defining what the radio should be about and what the radio, that radio should be of the people of the country and the people included the, the rebels. So, Sh Sheila, help me understand. I've read that this UN uh, radio in Sierra Leone as, as a means of, of uh, promoting peace became a model for the UN to replicate in other peacekeeping missions. Why, why was it so successful, do you think? The success of Radio Unamsil that set the roadmap for all other peacekeeping missions is some of what I just said to you in terms of radio by the people, for the people and with the people. We broadcast in five different languages. And the success is that we included the rebel factions. We say, you are the people of Sierra Leone, because they never thought that the UN was there for them. So when I had the SRSG voiced a public service announcement to say in both Creole and in in English and translated into the other languages, we were saying that the United Nations peacekeeping mission is here for all men inside Salon. All men inside Salon. It means that if you are a Sierra Leonean, we are here for you. We want peace. And so that was it. And, and I'm going to say it too. I'm going to say it. People love me. <laughs> I might as well say it because yeah. somebody just wrote something to say it's hard to remember a lot of things that people do in Sierra Leone Sheila we always remember your name hmm. I was very transparent I was very blunt the president listened to me every morning every minister of government listened to me every morning because the UN wanted me to be on radio, so I'm on five days a week. 
the radio was for the people. The radio had representatives from the different groups. We were speaking their languages. We were going to the people and talking to them, interviewing them, bringing their stories out. We were opening telephones. We were setting up, the, the UN spent maybe billions in Sierra Leone getting that country um, ready for radio because the national radio didn't cover the country. There was a place where a millob, they were flying over and they saw this tall thing. It was a bamboo statue, a bamboo pole, but it was bamboo upon bamboo upon bamboo. In a, in a valley, they saw this. And when they went and explored, they saw, they heard that there was a radio in Freetown. And that's how they set up this, their own little thing so that they can get the radio because radio is line of sight, right? Mm. So it was, a, it was a receiver, a radio receiver they built. Their own, they made it themselves. The country has so much resources that is, even today they're not tapping those resources, mm. human resources. These are people who never gone to school for anything like that. You know, and when I heard that, I, have, I had to hail them up on the radio. We, we also develop a program with one of my staff, Val Castle, who is still with radio there now, Samuel Val Castle, who he felt that um, the, the people that were coming to see me, you know, and the, the people were looking down on people who fought and that sort of thing. And Val came up with this thing. He wants to do something called a merry-go-round. And it's a love show. It's a show where people could call in about relationships, right? Because if you are a boy who are kidnapped and you can have sex with anybody because you have a gun, that's what love is. Our love is not in the equation at all. And the girls who never experienced love, all they know is whomever come in tonight, you know, Papsi Kaisi go, he's gone again and another one is going to come. They don't even know who the father of the child is. And so Val came up with this thing for people to talk about relationship. It's not that he was an expert, you know, but it's, it's something that for me, I felt he had a calling. That program helped to bring people together, to teach them about love and that sort of thing. And we kept to the program on the air and it was very popular. If, if we had taken it off, they, people would have descended on, on the radio station. So we had programs for every, every aspect of bringing people together, of building communities in sustainable ways, of, um, of giving people, breaking down the UN jargon and highfalutin language, for the common man to understand. And they say, oh, this is what the UN is about. Because if you can't get the people on board and to, to buy into what you're doing and to feel that they own it, it will never happen. And I want to tell you this. I learned all of this by being there and by doing. The, all this stuff you talked about with radio, it's, it seems like... Um when people feel 
that their their voice or their community is being heard or being represented or that they they feel part of part of the voices they're hearing on the radio that has a a really powerful effect on people yes it does actually yeah and that's why i do what i do now um i still do radio i just it's interesting that when you with your opening question you said something about community because i just came back from Salt Lake City. The UN Department of Global Communication just did this conference in Salt Lake City on building sustainable communities. And I thought that community radio in particular is a key tool to bringing communities together. So when they had the town hall here in New York at headquarters, UN headquarters, I didn't see anything about media. And so I raised the question about media. And the feedback I got was, Sheila, this is civil society. This is purely about civil society. And I'm saying, yes. So regardless of what it is, you need to have media. Plus, this is public information talking about sustainable cities and communities. People need media because when we we talk in silos in what we're doing, how do we get the broader community to hear and know what we're doing if media isn't integral to, to what we do? That was Sheila Katzman with an inspiring story that ends with, I think, a powerful argument for media and community being well connected with one another. And that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will remind you that you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network. And Aruka is spelt A-R-U-K-A-H. You can also help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. You can also learn more about us on our website, arukanetwork.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for a future interviewee, then you can reach me via email, jake at arukanetwork.org. And I would love to hear from you. But that's it from me. Until next time, bye for now. Hello, dedicated listener. Well done for making it this far right to the end of the show. 
while you're here, I'm going to give you one last sales pitch. Why not visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network and become a sponsor of the show. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And for as little as $2, two US dollars a month, you can become a patron. And through that, you will get access to things that no one else gets access to. You will get a book recommendation uh, from all future guests. You will get a shout out on the show. And for UK supporters who give at least $10 a month, you will get an Aruka Network tote bag and a postcard. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network and I'll see you there.